Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey, welcome everyone and uh, good morning. Um, I'm uh, Dan Volpod, Professor of Political Science here at Notre Dame. And um, I'm here with my class, um, Global Religious Freedom. And um, we'll open it up in, in a moment. And um, we're delighted to have with us um, our wonderful guest, uh, um, Asma uh, T. Uden. Um, I'll just briefly introduce um, Asma, and then we'll um, begin in a kind of interview format. Um, and then we'll, um, with, with uh, me interviewing um, is Uden, and then I will um, open it up for questions for the students in the class, and then open it up for questions for the people who are uh, on the call. So, Ms. Um, Asma T. Uden is a religious liberty lawyer and scholar working for the protection of religious expression for people of all faiths in the U.S. and abroad. Her areas of expertise include law and religion, um, international human rights law and religious freedom, and Islam and religious freedom. Ms. Uden is an active lecture, lecturer to diverse religious groups in the U.S. and overseas on the importance of religious liberty, and she is widely published on the topic by law reviews, university presses, and national and international newspapers. She has worked on religious liberty cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, federal appellate courts, and federal trial courts. She has defended religious claimants as diverse as evangelicals, Sikhs, Muslims, Native Americans, Jews, Catholics, and members of the Nation of Islam. Her legal, academic, and policy work uh, focuses on freedom of expression, such as religious garb, land use, access to religious materials in prison, rights of parochial schools, religious arbitration, and so on. She worked with the U.S. Department of State on advocacy against the UN defamation of religion, uh, religions resolution. She received a State Department grant to develop a legal training institute in the Middle East and North Africa and Southeast Asian countries. In addition to her legal work, Uden writes and speaks on Muslims and gender. As the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com, she has managed the web magazine and organized vigorous debates and conferences on the multifaceted issues of gender, politics, and religion. She has advised numerous media projects on American Muslims, including most recently as executive producer for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries, The Secret Life of Muslims. After graduating from the University of Chicago Law School, she served as counsel for the Beckett Fund of Religious Liberty and is director of strategy for the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom in Washington, D.C., she is an expert advisor on religious liberty to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, senior scholar at the Museum's Religious Freedom Center, a visiting scholar at Brigham Young University Law School, and a non-residential fellow at UCLA and Georgetown University. She is also a term member with the Council on Foreign Relations and an adjunct law professor at George Mason University Law School. Now, before I ask some questions, I want to uh, begin by um, just sharing with everyone um, the most recent book that um, Ms. Uden has published. I'm going to share a screen just for a moment. Um, 
So um, here is my sharing screen. And you see the Simon and Schuster plate um, Osma. So here is the um, book plate for um, when Islam is not a religion. This is the most um, recent book. And um, so this can be ordered through Amazon or what have you, any of these booksellers. And um, no, sorry, this is not the most recent book. This is one she published um, uh, just a few years ago. And then, and, uh, but that's what we'll be talking about this one today. In addition to this book, which is the most recent book, The Politics of Vulnerability, just published last month. The Politics of Vulnerability, Today's Threat to religious, Religion and Religious Freedom, How to Heal Muslim-Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America. And um, so here are uh, booksellers and um, there's information, information on ordering. So encourage everyone to um, consider... Uh, purchasing these books, and um, I will certainly be making more information available on the books um, here to my students. Okay, good. Now let's move to um, the uh, question and answer session. Good. So let me thank you guys. You guys, we have kind of a routine here, don't we? Um, good. Um, can you hear me well now? Um, Asma? Yes, I can can hear you. Very good. So tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be interested in religious freedom? And tell us a little bit about the work you did at the Beckett Fund as well. Sure. Well, thank you, Dan, for having me here today. Um, It's great to see your your class and the other people who have joined um, this program. Um, So how did I come to be interested in religious freedom is actually something, I mean, it, it wasn't planned by any means. Uh, it was, a, it's absolutely passion driven as I described in the description for my first book, my work in religious liberty is something that I feel is more of a calling than an actual job. Um, and if I can try half to trace back where my interest in it came, I think first and foremost, it came from um, my own religious upbringing and just the spiritual sort of a, a deep sort of appreciation for the spiritual foundations that my religion and my, my father specifically, and someone I actually talk about a lot in the first book, uh, instilled in me from the very beginning. And, and I mean, he, I mean, so I'm, I'm going to talk about him a little bit, of the, and I will talk about him in the past tense because he passed away in 2006. Um, but he was somebody who absolutely embodied all the best parts of, of religion generally, just the, the parts that um, motivate people to just engage in just almost heroic acts of of charity, self sacrifice, um, kindness. That's exactly what he was as a pioneer, as a Muslim pioneer in the in Miami, which is where he immigrated to from from Pakistan. I mean, more more recently from um, from when he went to uh, graduate school in Pittsburgh, but from there from Carnegie Mellon, he went down to Miami as a civil engineer, who at the time, actually in the 70s, uh, Miami was relatively undeveloped. Um, and so he actually has his imprint, even though he passed away in 2006, my father's imprint is all over the city of Miami in the form of various or terminals at the, the Miami airport, the, the seaport, the affordable housing communities there, so on and so forth, that he actually designed. 
Um, and, you know, in addition to his service to Miami and the construction of Miami, uh, he absolutely gave back to its people as well in the form of um, just all kinds of help, like people he, he helped with their immigration paperwork. I mean, my father was a civil engineer. He wasn't an immigration lawyer, but he was like helping people with immigration, with uh, giving them interest-free loans to, for them to buy homes. Uh, and so many, I mean, just helping people with their, their college loans. I mean, just things that he was doing as a way of serving the community. And in addition to that, um, in, in serving the people and in constructing Miami, um, he also very much wanted to leave his, his religious imprint there in, in the form of the various mosques and Islamic centers that he also helped design and fund. Um, and there's actually a building at the Islamic School of Miami, if you were to go there today, that is actually named after my father. Um, and so certainly that was the, the background, right? That was the context in which I grew up. And then I had a really deep sort of intellectual interest in religion as well, such that I was the only seventh grader in my middle school walking around with Karen Armstrong's A History of God, trying to generate the faith conversation among my fellow middle schoolers. And from there to, to high school, where I actually did start that, those interfaith conversations on a more sort of uh, formal level, um, from there to college, where I ended up majoring, among other majors, in religious studies, uh, mostly because I just took one too many classes in it, and, um, and on to law school, where it continued to interest me, and then I wanted to look at the intersection of religion and law. And despite all that, I somehow found myself in corporate law right after, um, right after law school and, and realized a couple years in that that was not a good fit um, and took a moment to think, what is a good fit? And I'm like, well, I've always been interested in religion um, and found one law firm in the entire United States that at the time, this is uh, like 2009, um, was doing the religious liberty work that I was interested in, but more importantly, was doing it from the perspective of religious liberty for all. Um, There's a number of other firms at the time that were doing this work, but it was Christians litigating for Christians um, or, you know, Muslims litigating for Muslims. And I wanted to do it on behalf of everyone. Or there are people who were in the space, various groups, but doing it from the perspective of religion being something that needs to be taken out of the public space, as opposed to finding uh, a robust space to flourish. And that was also not my perspective. And so that's how I ended up at the Beckett Fund, um, and you know, the rest is history. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a, a illustrious history indeed. In your book, When Islam is Not a Religion, you document the restriction on and the hostility to the religious freedom of Muslims in the United States. Where do the attitudes come from that motivate this restriction, hostility? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really complex question. I think that, you know, there's lots of different factors. Um, and in my second book, actually, I, I probe a factor that I think has not been looked at before. Uh, but we'll get to that. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the various factors, I think, you know, there's racialization is definitely one of them. Um, the, and by racialization is this idea um, yeah, so basically stereotyping by white Americans that Muslims are homogeneously brown and Arab instead of the ethnically diverse group that they are. I mean, there's 1.8 billion Muslims uh, across the world in very, like, pretty much every possible sort of culture and ethnicity. But they're thought of as pretty much uniformly as brown and Arab, maybe increasingly so as South Asian. Um, so there's this idea, this sort of racialized concept of Muslims, which then also leads to this to, to racism based on the perceived negative attributes of this brownness. 
Um, there's also, I think, a lot of hostility based on, you know, what I, you know, based on everything that I've seen in terms of commentary on pretty much any opinion editorial that I've written uh, about Muslims' rights is like a series of people always in the comment section saying, well, why are we talking about Muslims' rights when Muslims, you know, this is, again, a uniform sort of statement about um, Muslims don't protect the rights of minorities in their lands, which I know, Dan, you have probed quite a bit and, and disproven. Um there's also securitization. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it that, you know, 9-11 um, and everything that preceded it and preceded it, but absolutely 9-11 and it's, it's, it's for the large part um, has had a major impact in sort of making a lot of Americans uh, think of Muslims as both internal and external security threats. And it's not just the acts of unfortunate, these unfortunate acts of terrorism, but also the way that that certain themes are developed around them and then amplified by what the Center for American Progress calls Fear Incorporated, which is a $1.5 billion industry that is absolutely you know, dedicated day in and day out to, to propagating fear about Muslims, uh, and then translating that fear into sort of concrete attacks on Muslims' rights, which is something that I trace for the reader in my first book, um, because that's certainly the origin of this claim after which I you know, named the book that Islam is not a religion and that therefore Muslims do not have access to religious freedom rights. Um, and I mean, it's so pervasive, that particular framework and the talking points that are, are that are basically translated over to politicians, media personalities. I mean, there's the exact same talking points, this idea of Muslims as, uh, as threats, as uniformly deceptive, don't ever believe a Muslim, even if they seem good and kind, because it's actually just a front uh, for something far more nefarious. Um, that mosques are merely Trojan horses for terrorists to come and plant themselves in American suburbs and from that, uh, from there to uh, plan their uh, takeover of the United States. Um, I mean, if these, things think, if, these, if these things seem fantastical, unfortunately, the fact that they seem so extreme um, hasn't stopped them from having major impact. I mean, I've heard these precise talking points be uh, repeated by people on mainstream news televisions, uh, uh, in news shows, um, and politicians uh, of, of a wide range. Um, you know, I have a, a friend who works with state legislators, and he says that he estimates that up to about 5 to 10% of them actually hold to some version of this idea that Islam, the major world religion, is not the religion. Um, and so, you know, I mean, certainly that you know, it's one thing to say that there's all these things happening in the world and people are watching it and they're forming their ideas of Muslims, but I think everybody has to understand that it's it's not happening independently. It's happening in, in, a, in a context in which lots of money is being poured into really amplifying this feeling of threat. Um, and then in my, my, my most recent book that came out a couple of weeks ago, I explored a couple of different other things. Um, one, the rise of Christian nationalism, um, in the United States during the Trump era and the impact that that's had. This idea of Christ, uh, you know, Christian nationalism defined as sort of seeing the United States as a Christian nation, um, which, is, which is very different. I actually distinguish in the book the, the perspective of, of America as Christian as understood by Christian nationalists versus, for example, conservative white evangelicals. And I, and I, and I parse that difference very carefully because I don't want to lump them in to the same group. Um, but as I explained in the book, a nationalist perspective is very much positioned as in terms of political goals, whereas other conservative Christians think of it more in terms of spiritual goals. And for the four, and for those who do think of 
um, you know, the Christian nation concept in terms of political goals, there has to be, you know, it very much puts Muslims, in addition to other religious minorities, outside the framework of what is American. But I mean, there's additional steps that are taken with Muslims that are not taken with other groups, uh, such that they're not just un-American, but they're also anti-American. Um, and so I explore that in the second book, and I also look at the role of tribalism. I look at, for example, the ways that Muslims are now lumped in with the political left. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, I explain the concept, for example, of mega identities in the book, um, so that all the different traits that go part of this liberal mega identity, which include the, the protection of Muslims' rights um, and the advocacy of those rights, is now when the, when the conservative mega identity positions itself to oppose everything that's part of the liberal mega identity, um, Muslims and Muslims' rights get caught up in that as well. Now you're painting a pretty dark picture, and yet I have long been under the impression that Muslims have enjoyed a far better experience at being assimilated into the U.S., you know, like you and your family, than they have in Western Europe, and that this is explainable in part by the First Amendment to the Constitution, which affords Muslims religious freedom. Is this more positive picture not accurate after all? Or is it the case that it is accurate, but needs to be tempered by the kinds of problems to which you point? Well, I would say it's, it's the second one. Um, you know, when I was on my book tour with the first book, um, and so far my book tour for this one has been very different and completely virtual, but the first one allowed me to sort of really sort of interact with people in person. And, you know, a number of my presentations in front of Muslim audiences, you know, people are just really kind of like scared. They're like everything you're telling us, I mean, exactly the way you reacted, Dan, but imagine hearing it from the perspective of, of a Muslim who's already scared, by the way, living in, in Trump's America as, as they were back in 2019 when I was on tour with this. And, um, you know, just that fear of, of, you know, we're already seeing the backlash. It was an experience, certainly, in, in various degrees and forms um, by almost every Muslim. Um, but and you're telling us it's like, it's, it's so, you know, you're telling us about all these horrible things that are happening and these people who are saying these things and what they're planning. But I always tell them, that, you know, I'm, I'm positioning it in the context of, you know, my, my absolute belief that the U.S. is the place that protects religious freedom the best from anywhere else in the world. Um, and this is informed by my work in the international space. You know, when I started at the Beckett Fund, my first couple of years there were, were spent entirely working on international religious freedom issues, uh, where, and, a number, and mostly focused actually on Muslim-majority states, both in the Middle East, North Africa, and in Pakistan, for example, and also Southeast Asia and in Indonesia. Um, and, you know, I, I'm well aware of the international landscape, and I do think that um, the U.S. and specifically the American legal framework is the one that protects uh, religious freedom most robustly. And also, of course, I, I also work with the OSCE, right, the, the Organization for Securing Cooperation in Europe. So my comparison point here is also, um, you know, other parts of the Western world. And absolutely, I think anybody looking at what's going on in France uh, not to mention the ideas that start there and spread to other European states. Um, you know, again, I think the U.S. has the best possible framework. And I think that, you know, relatively speaking, um, Muslims are the safest and most protected in the United States. But as, a, as an attorney and as specifically a religious freedom attorney, what, you know, for years working at the Beckett Fund, um, you know, the contrast was very, was stark, right? So when I used to work on these international issues, these questions of, religious freedom were matters of life and death often. 
um, or freedom, you know, the freedom and or being jailed, right? Um, and in the U.S., it was it's always about just parsing things like so carefully and and determining the more sort of complex like institutional rights or religious freedom and and so on. Um, so there's definitely a stark difference. But as Americans, our job is to to continuously make sure that our society lives up to the ideals of our constitution and that we're protecting the rights that our constitution affords equally for all Americans. Uh, so my, my, criticism, my critique is really sort of within that framework. Okay, yes, thank you. And in this past um, answer to this past question and in your new book, The Politics of Vulnerability, you, you speak about what Muslims experience under the Trump administration. Can you detail the pattern in one or two egregious examples of it? Sure. And I think in terms of, you know, what Muslims experience under the Trump administration, I think it's more the focus of the first book. Um, and, you know, and, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about there, for example, is, um, I mean, specifically, the first book is positioned in this idea of like religious freedom as understood in these diverse ways, right? And so one of the things that I explore is the differences in, of, um, in terms of the, the rulings at the Supreme Court, um, in two cases that were decided three weeks apart. And so the first case that was decided in about like mid-June 2018 was a masterpiece cake shop case, which involved uh, a Christian baker who uh, declined to make a wedding cake for a gay couple. And in that case, the court actually held in favor of the Christian baker, saying that the commissioners on the Colorado Human Rights Commission had said a number of things against the Christian baker's religion that reflected anti-religious animus. And that by no means should government officials be, you know, our first, our, our first amendment requires that government officials not engage in, you know, not rule from a position of anti-religious animus. And then three weeks later, um, the court decided the travel ban case, um, which I'm sure everyone knows it was a ban that had, you know, there were various iterations of it. The court was speaking on the third, you know, travel ban 3.0 um, that, you know, like the other ones, um, banned you know, entry from um, a number of states, the majority of which were Muslim majority. And in that case, you know, absolutely backed up with um, plenty of history of extreme anti-Muslim statements from the campaign trail, from even before, you know, Trump began the campaign trails and on the campaign when he was talking about banning Muslims. And then, you know, the court reaching this conclusion that it couldn't rule on the issue because uh, because of deference uh, to the president. Um, and there was this outcry, you know, and I, and I absolutely, you know, recognize that there are reasonable people who can disagree on whether or not the court came out the right way or not. Um, but the reality was on the ground there, that the, the travel ban had exacted a lot of, um, you know, a lot of emotional and physical and financial and other burdens on the Muslim community. That cannot be, I mean, I think that absolutely have to be recognized as one of the most sort of egregious examples of, of you know, um, restrictions, you know, rights violations in, in the United States during the Trump era. And so anything from emotional sort of burdens of people never, you know, you know there's, there was a story of a woman who never got to say goodbye to her father in Iran before he passed away and did not get the chance to mourn with her family simply because she couldn't travel out of the country and go there and actually get back in. Um, another, you know, plenty of Muslims who are detained at the, at the airport, uh, during the chaotic implementation of the first Muslim ban, people who have been living here for decades, who are sort of caught up in this and detained for hours, if not longer. Um, people who were, you know, students who are afraid to return home to visit their families because their visas may not be reissued. 
Um, and people who would travel, you know, who spend thousands of dollars just traveling to the border just to be able to hug someone they love. Um, you know, even though there's a waiver process that, you know, and there have been thousands of applications that have been uh, submitted to receive a waiver from the travel ban, very few have actually been issued. Um, there's also, you know, just the, the impact on refugee numbers, the fact that so many people have, um, you know, have been continued to suffer from persecution abroad and have not been able to come in. People who have been, whose immigration process has been halted because this process of quote unquote extreme vetting has now included uh, social media monitoring so that, um, you know, pretty much anything you say can be uh, misconstrued as, as a potential threat that will not get you past the, the quote unquote, again, extreme vetting process. Um, and of course, you know, another thing that I trace for the reader in the first book is the local iteration of the travel ban. I mean, within, you know, the few weeks after the Trump's first announcement of, you know, travel ban 1.0, um, there was, you know, this, this idea that Muslims have to be excluded from America has to be, it was replicated at the local level in terms of people actually resisting the Muslim communities there. Um, there was a series of mosques that were actually burned down in the, in the three weeks spanning um, that first uh, and following that first announcement. Uh, people are not aware of this, the fact that there's actual mosques that are being burned down. Um, and, you know, this idea that you don't belong here. Um, and so and then that, of course, goes to just lots and lots of resistance to mosques even being constructed in the first place. In the book, I also take the reader to a number of places in the United States where Muslims are trying to build cemeteries, uh, Muslim cemeteries, and even that is receiving fierce pushback, which to me is, you know, the pinnacle of like the dehumanization of, of others, right? If we can't even understand our shared experiences in both birth and death, uh, that I'm not really sure what's left, um, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, thank you. Um, finally, one more question from me. Your new book is subtitled, seems more on the uh, pointing to a, a positive future, how to heal Muslim Christian relations in a post-Christian America. Well, that alone speaks volumes. What are the keys to this healing and why do you think America is post-Christian? Sure, so, I mean, the second book came out of a couple of things. Um, first, my experience, you know, over a decade working in religious liberty, including on behalf of, you know, a wider, I mean, you had mentioned in the bio, just a number of different types of communities that I have worked on behalf of. Uh, including conservative Christian claims. Um, the Beckett Fund was, um, you know, counsel, a lead counsel in the Hobby Lobby case, for example, uh, in addition to a number of other, I mean, most recently, I think Beckett's actually lead counsel a number of pretty much all the cases um, involving religious freedom at the Supreme Court. Um, a number of them, whether it be, you know, ministerial exception cases uh, where Christian entities are seeking the right to hire or fire uh, employees at their religious institutions, uh, without government interference, um, whether it's the Fulton case that involves uh, a Catholic, so Catholic social services that says it doesn't want to refer um, same-sex couples for as, as foster parents, um, and, you know, Hobby Lobby, which was like the big sort of like super controversial case um, that I think, you know, that I actually position as like the one that triggered our, our latest iteration of the culture wars, um, which involves the, the, a, a fundamentalist Protestant family, the Green family, who own Hobby Lobby, and said that they did not want to abide by the portion of the Affordable Care Act contraceptive mandate that required them to provide um, a, a number of different sort of uh, 
drugs that they considered abortifacients to their employees free of charge, because that would be in violation of their religious beliefs against abortion. And so, you know, being in the space where I'm both a religious minority um, and I'm very much concerned about the rights of my own community in addition to the rights of other um, religious minorities, um, but also advocating on behalf of conservative Christians. I mean, also, often there's this dichotomy in our society right now between these two groups, right? It's like the powerful white Christian majority versus marginalized minorities. And, but my experience kind of showed me, I mean, when I saw these people and sort of understood their stories, I was, you know, fully sort of um, made aware of like the sincerity of their beliefs and the depth of their, of their um, dedication to their religion. And I was quite impressed by it, honestly, just, it, I mean, it was obviously real. And so these media claims about how this was actually just a pretext for, um, you know, a war on women and so on. To me, I, I just recognize that as false because I knew these people for who they were. And I think that understanding sort of being at this intersection in between these two groups that are often pitted against each other uh, has put me in a pretty unique position. And so when I came out with this book that is obviously, you know, very critical of these various attacks that are happening in American Muslims, and unfortunately many of them, uh, if not all, of, you know, pretty much all of them, are coming from, you know, the political right. Unfortunately, a lot of them are coming from people who you know, sort of identify as conservative Christian and are very concerned about religious freedom for themselves and for their community, but don't see any problem advocating that another religious community not get religious freedom. Um, so I'm just very sort of open about that. But I did it from a position of, hey, guys, like, if you really care about religious freedom, this is actually what you need to do. You need to protect it for everyone, because that's just the nature of our jurisprudence. Um, so even just functioning from like a position of self-interest, if you want to protect it for yourself, you have to protect it for everyone. And, and I did it from kind of just wanting to reach out to people and talk to them on their own terms. And so when the book came out, I, I got a number of invitations from very conservative outlets uh, and you know, venues. And I, and I went there and the conversation was so open and honest and they were really open to sort of just like hearing what I had to say and like, and, and you know, thinking through it in a constructive way. And that to me is sort of what got me thinking. I was just like, well, what's going on? Like in society so often, uh, in our society so often, people just don't want, I mean, they just, if you're criticizing them, they, they often sort of uh, just see you as the enemy, right? Um, and, and I wanted to probe that. Uh, and that's what I probe in, in the second book, because I'm just like, well, if I can have these open conversations and these dialogues, um, because I see the people that I'm engaging with as not someone that, you know, as not people who are outside the pale, but actually people who are just very, human and maybe the things that they're doing are very much driven by human fears and emotions and what I sort of describe most, um, you know, described right on the, the cover of the book as vulnerability. And, you know, well, how is it that that vulnerability, you know, that is being brought about for a number of reasons that I probe in the book uh, is leading them to act out with hostility. And if we begin to see them as humans and engage them on that basis, not instead of sort of these evil actors that are sort of beyond the pale, how does that help them feel less vulnerable and sort of lead to our ability to sort of get past the weaponization of that vulnerability so that we're actually connecting? And so that's where that subtitle comes in, How to Heal Muslim-Christian Relations in a Post-Christian America. Um, I use the Muslim-Christian sort of as a microcosm, like that, those two groups, uh, which I explain in the book as, as proxies for the political right and the political left. Um, and so I'm like, if we can get these proxies talking on the basis of what the types of things that I've uncovered and that I've researched uh, for the second book, 
what does that tell us in terms of other proxies of these various ideological camps and how we can get those two talking? Okay, excellent. Um, thank you so much. Very thoughtful answers. Let's open, let's spend the, divide the rest of the time between the students in this classroom, and then we'll go to the um, people joining us on the call. So for about 20 minutes, um, who would like to uh, pose the first question? Uh, Emily? Um, hi, so uh, I'm- Say your name and where you're oh, from. Okay, I'm Emily Krejci. Uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a junior. Um, and I'm currently writing a paper on blasphemy laws um, in Muslim majority states that uh, punish often capital punishment to people who speak out against um, religion, typically Islam. So I guess my question for you, I know you have experience working with these issues, is since these blasphemy laws are in direct um, violation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, I guess my question is, why aren't these countries being punished by international actors? Um, if they are in violation of international law, why does it seem that many of these countries are allowed to keep these laws in place? Well, I mean, so it's been a while since I've worked on international issues, um, but I can give you the example of Indonesia that, I mean, you have to be a signatory to ICCPR and there, I mean, you can be a signatory and also have like derogations, for example, say that, you know, I... Um, signing on, but this is a part, you know, this particular part I'm not. Um, and so that was, you know, the question in, in Indonesia when I actually brought a case against, or we trained lawyers locally um, to bring a case against um, the Indonesian Blasphemy Act. And so it was interesting because I was actually in the Indonesian Constitutional Court, which is their highest court, at the time that the opinion was delivered. And it was, you know, extremely long process because they go through before they read their opinion they first have to read everything that was like filed in the case so for like five hours you're sitting there listening to stuff in Indonesian um and so um you know it was interesting because these judge these justices or judges were um you know basically railing against the international I mean this was back in like 2010 um and they were just kind of just like you know the entire sort of western human rights framework is based on um, something that's absolutely antithetical to what we, you know, believe in what the types of traditions that are um, predominant in, in Indonesia. It, they, had, they had total false depictions of what happens in the U.S. in terms of, uh, you know, portraying the U.S. as, as hyper-secular and, and not allowing, for example, students to pray um, in public schools. Um, and they're just like, well, that's something that's just so different from what we are. And so by, you know, by how can we, you know, allow those sorts of norms to inform the way that we approach religion and religious speech in the U.S. Um, and so that was my question at that time. I mean, as a signatory to the ICCPR, how can you, um, you know, how can you both be a signatory but also be rejecting the West, you know, this, what they see as a Western human rights framework? Um, but, you know, what was interesting is that the court, and this was actually, you know, I had written the public policy part of our brief, um, talking about the, the public order concept, uh, the, the public order concerned a lot of these states have. Um, and it ended up being the thing that dominated their entire opinion that we can't really uh, strike down the blasphemy act because what's going to happen if someone says something that's offensive to someone else, then that person gets angry and acts with the violence. In order to protect order in our society, we have to stop the person from, the person who's speaking, the nonviolent speaker from offending the potentially violent, um, you know, other person. 
Um, which to me, of course, has it absolutely wrong. Like the way to protect against violence is to actually punish the violent actor and not the nonviolent actor. Um, but, you know, in ICCPR, the provisions that protect freedom of religion or belief actually have a number of exceptions built in. And one of them is that if it's against public order, then you can restrict freedom of religion. And so, you know, I contemplate this. I contemplate this also in the context of the European Court of Human Rights. And I actually wrote an op-ed for, uh, for the New York Times back when the Burkini ban was issued by a number of towns in France, where they said the same thing, that we're going to ban women from wearing this modest swimsuit because we think that if people see them wearing this and that they're going to get upset um, and then they're going to engage in riots. And so we're going to stop the women from wearing the burkinis. I mean, it's just a version of these people with blasphemy acts, right? This idea that, that you know, we have to punish the nonviolent speaker or the nonviolent actor. Um, and, you know, and, and the way to justify it again is that, look, we're not required to uphold these freedoms if we think that it's going to violate public order. And so that, I mean, it's really just sort of a way that where they can violate human rights while still staying within the framework of human rights. And that's the sort of thing that has to continue to be parsed. I mean, the Euro European Court of Human Rights has gone way beyond that with the burqa ban, right, the, the, the faith veil, saying that it violates our ability to live together. Um, you know, it's just like super vague concepts, um, but, you know, they justify it, again, as sort of positioning it within um, some version of the exception. Um, to the right. Very good. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that your name is. Oh, here. right. My name is Patrick Ivany. Uh, I'm from Long Beach, California. Um, I'm curious about, you talked about some of the causes um, of Islamophobia, including racialization and securitization. And I'm curious which way you think, like which of those you think is predominant, if you think the era of causality flows from one to another especially now as, you know, the foreign policy focus of the U.S. is not so exclusively focused uh, on conflict in the Middle East, if you think that'll uh, change at all and what implications that has for your advocacy. Yeah, I mean, so I think um, in terms of my own work, you know, I'm not really so much in the space of, like, Islamophobia, right? There's entire, like, centers at universities that probe these things as to, like, the causes of Islamophobia and, like, specifically... Um, but those two pieces, the racialization, which I think the racialization argument is actually a newer one. I mean, the literature on that is like fairly new. Um, and there's a version of that, that that ties into my arguments about Islam not being a religion. The idea in that case being Islam is seen as a race, uh, which I think there's really interesting things to parse there, particularly in terms of the political left and its relationship with Muslims, um, primarily as like an ethnic or racial minority. Um, you know, but in, but in terms of like the connect, you know, the relationship between racialization, securitization, and, and which way it flows, and so on. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm in the best position to answer that. I I think for me, like when I was looking, when I was working on my um, second book, I was like, I understand the space of Islamophobia and like it's and the sort of probing of the various causes and and, and factors that exacerbate it is so complex. But for me, what I what I my contribution was like, I think the thing that no one's talking about is the role of political tribalism. And I just don't understand how that can't be an issue because we, I mean, political says we, we are currently experiencing the ferocious politicization of everything. Um, and absolutely, if you follow the religious freedom space and you see the way that, you know, the Christian right is always talking about how the left is attacking its rights and doesn't understand its traditions, but is simultaneously protecting Muslims and standing up for Muslims' religious rights, it becomes like it's almost, you know, it's very, it becomes very tribal. Um, 
and and I and I trace that in very concrete term with with lots of evidence in my book. Um, you know, and so I would say, you know, I, I think there was um, a piece that I read uh, or towards the end of the 2020 campaign presidential campaign that was talking about like how the word terrorist did not come up once, like no mention of Islamic or Muslim terrorists came up once in the entire presidential campaign. Um, And it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, beyond just the question of the conflict in the Middle East, I think it's just the focus of, you know, the scapegoat and the types of, you know, enemies to be pointed to and to be used to divide the two parties uh, changed. It actually became more, you know, local. It became the coronavirus, for example, in in our responses to that. Um, and so, you know, whereas the 2016 campaign, the question of terrorism was actually, was absolutely front and center. And it was like Donald Trump was positioning himself in one way versus the way he was portraying, uh, Clinton. Um, so I don't know that I can answer your question, but, but, you know, to acknowledge, I think our, just our, our focus has shifted. And, um, I think that tribalism has honestly become one of the biggest and best ways to attack your opponent. And at the end of the day, it's really just kind of, you know, utilization of that. Hi, my, my name is Joel from South Bend. Uh, you got into this a little bit in your introduction, but do you think in terms of religious exemptions from laws and government policies in America that Muslims don't receive the same levels of accommodation that other religions such as Christianity do? Um, I mean, I think there's definitely, so there is some empirical evidence, for example, there's been, there was a number of studies um, you know, I mean, the most recent, though, I think I sort of looked at cases up until 2005, where they actually traced, so there was one set that happened, you know, like in the, in the, the 90s, and then they found this very disparate sort of, um, this disparity in the fact that of all religious claimants, Muslims were the least likely uh, to win their religious liberty claims. And then, so they were sort of intrigued by this. They did another study looking at another decade of cases where they found the same pattern again, that as compared to every other religious group in the United States, Muslims are the least likely to win their religious liberty claim. Um, and in that particular study, they sort of probed the reasons for this, like why is it that this is happening? And after sort of considering and then rejecting a number of different hypotheses, they sort of conclude that the reason is because the stereotypes that pervade American society um, about Muslims are certainly impacting judges as well. Um, I mean, judges are not, you know, robots they're people and so they whether they realize it or not they they come to see muslims as security threats and because a, a you know a third of muslim religious liberty claims are brought by muslim prisoners uh certainly the idea of like security and and violence etc comes to the fore even more um so there's that empirical evidence and then there's like you know a number of others are po- popular um conversations around sort of tracking some of the disparities in the ways or the perceived disparities in the way that the Supreme Court, for example, has come out in various cases. So there was the masterpiece versus travel ban uh, difference that I that I mentioned earlier. Um, there was also a case involving a Muslim prisoner, um, death row inmate, who was scheduled for his execution and wanted his imam or you know the Muslim clergyman with him in the execution chamber and was denied the presence of that imam because the the prison only permitted Christian clergymen in the execution chamber. Um, so those sorts of cases have certainly, uh, you know, led to lots of conversation around, um, I mean, there was a New York Times editorial that was titled, Is Religious Freedom for Christians Only? And this was right around when my book was coming out, um, where I traced that difference. And so, 
You know, I think in terms of accommodations, I don't know that someone, you know, I think that it's been mostly at the level of just like who's winning their religious liberty claim under the free exercise clause, the establishment clause and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And that evidence has pointed to the fact that Muslims are the least are the most likely to lose their case um, as opposed to other groups taking the same types of accommodations. Um, hi, my name is Maura. I'm from Milwaukee. Um, so in terms of the definition of Islam as a faith, I mean, based on like a First Amendment interpretation and like generally common sense, it, it does exist. But I was wondering, how do you, um, how does one in order to combat this prejudice sometimes coming specifically from other faiths, how does one rationalize and explain its obvious political existence, so to speak, to a religion to whom like faith is more important than government or like their own beliefs and ideals would be more important than that first amendment um, freedom of speech and religion interpretation within the United States. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah, of course, um, more so like because of the first amendment with that freedom of religion, like obviously to one to whom like the existence of Islam as a faith and its allowance to be practiced within the United States makes sense in a political context. How does one, in order to combat prejudice against Islam in the United States, rationalize that existence to someone to whom their own faith and ideals is much more important and holds more weight than that definition? Well, I mean, the way that I talk about it in, um, well, both books, but the first book, and definitely during my tour, was that I, I mean, what I was saying in terms of self-interest and like the jurisprudence of, of religious liberty, um, the nature of the way that the law works is that it's less about the specific, you know, like the religion of the claimant in a particular case, um, but more about like, what are the principles that have now been established in, in our precedent, right? And so if you're going to allow, if you're going to say that, you know, we find Islam and Muslims to be deeply problematic and we therefore are going to advocate for a legal framework in which, for example, judges can parse, um, you know, Islam and decide which parts of our religion and which parts they think is actually probably more politics or something else and therefore not something that can be protected. Uh, whatever it is that you're advocating that, you know, legal and policy actors do with respect to Islam is by no means limited to, to Muslims. I mean, the nature of this is it's a question about your, the, a religious believer's relationship with the government and how much power we want to give the government to be able to decide these sorts of questions about what is acceptable, what is going to be protected, and what can the government come in and stop, right? So, so if you're going to create that precedent and give this freedom to the government to be able to do those things, well, guess what? In the future, I mean, it's not going to be it's Muslims, right? It's going to be some other religious group that's going to be subject to this uh, and not even just in the future, like at any point, once you give that power, uh, now the government has that power to enforce it against any group that it, that it deems fit. Um, so the protection of freedom and liberty is something that needs to be done in a coherent way in order to protect, you know, all groups. Um, sorry, I had a thought and I, and I lost my train of thought. But I mean, it's really you know, it's that, that idea that right now, I, I was going to say, actually, was, um, you know, I've heard actually from, from you know, uh, there was, for example, one of my former colleagues, Luke Goodrich, wrote a book called Free to Believe, where he was trying to explain why religious liberty is important, and his readership was specifically an evangelical readership. And so he has this chapter on, like, Muslims and this claim that Islam is not a religion, 
And he, he says the same thing, you know, like, I think this is a really bad idea for any of us to be pushing this claim because it's just going to come back to bite us. And then he says, in fact, I think, I think we all believe, and this goes back to the question of vulnerability that I explore in the second book, that many conservative Christians think that, that American society is absolutely positioned against them, right? Especially by the quote unquote liberal elites. And they're like, we believe that before anyone actually ever, you know, attempts to push this with respect to Muslims, we think that Christians are absolutely going to be, um, you know, positioned as a political entity and not a religious one. And so it kind of speaks into the types of fears that a lot of Christians already have uh, about their beliefs being sort of, um, you know, misidentified as, uh, you know, political or, or something else, right? Just mere pretext for, for bigotry, et cetera, et cetera. And that that's the basis upon which their religious beliefs are restricted. Um, so I think that that feeling of threat, the fact that we're all in it together and you have to understand this as a threat that can affect any other group, uh, is I think the way that I would talk to those people. Drew, do you want to ask yours? Yeah. yeah. So this is quite unfortunate. Sorry, my name's Drew. I'm from London, England. Um, so in the introduction of your new book, you said Sharia does not apply to non-Muslims, nor would it be used to force anyone to convert to Islam. It does not threaten American values. Um, I do agree with this, and my sort of experience with Sharia living in the UK um, is obviously the government permitting Sharia courts, um, which has obviously sort of been hailed as a step forward in religious freedom, and there's sort of H5 across the country, which allows sort of religious issues sort of as divorce or family conflict to be resolved in religious courts. I think it's a great idea. Um, so my first question to you would be, do you think that um, these courts could ever realistically sort of exist in America? Um, sort of with some states trying to ban Sharia. Um, and do you think it could all, like Sharia could actually coexist um, with the American legal system? And then my sort of second part of the question uh, concerns with your last part of the statement says, it does not threaten American values. Um, and so in England recently, there's been sort of some conflict with these courts uh, because English people see or have thought contrary to English law that Sharia courts sometimes discriminate on the basis of sex and that particularly women who experience domestic violence um, are sometimes not, or are seen as put at a, a disadvantage in these courts. Um, so the second question would be, do you think that, um, because in the UK, some people think that they might threaten um, English values sort of as gender equality and women's rights. Do you think that that would not happen in America, possibly a different system? Um, and just how do you think Sharia could really coexist um, with the American legal system peacefully? Sure. So it's not something that's like theoretical. I mean, Sharia does coexist with the American legal system currently. I mean, we have these arbitration uh, tribunals that have, ex that have existed and that do exist. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out. I think I, I make it a point in the book to, to focus on this as a U.S. discussion um, because I fully recognize that this is a very different situation in places like the UK. Uh, and I think much of it is because there's a, just a difference in the way that the American legal framework works. You know, so earlier when I was talking about, so I guess this sort of version of American exceptionalism when it comes to religious liberty, I mean, it's also just a way that it deals with these complicated issues of how do you allow for this broad freedom of contract and the ability for people of various religious traditions or no religious tradition to be able to choose the terms of their agreement. Um, so, you know, for example, when it comes to the analysis of these anti-Sharia laws in the United States that have now, there's 217 bills that have been proposed in 43 states, um, you know, lots of 
analysts look at it and they're just like, it's like this, this solution looking for a problem. Um, because we've had plenty of cases in which Muslims have gone to, uh, you know, have submitted their disputes to Sharia arbitration and everything has been fine. It's actually there has not been a problem. So it's not something that's theoretical. Um, and I do talk about it in the book, if you look at, I think, chapter five, where I take you through a number of cases and explain to you how this works exactly in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is one, I mean, there's two reasons. One is because Sharia arbitration is limited to a certain subset of matters. Right. So any sort of criminal law issues are absolutely not you know, available for arbitration. You can't arbitrate those. And then even on civil issues, um, mostly personal law issues or like family law issues, um, even within that, there's like a subset of things that are not permitted. For example, child custody, where state standards around uh, the best interest of the child would be would take precedence over uh, over whatever tradition. You know, remember, Sharia is something that's interpreted in many ways. It's not a monolith. There are many schools of thought, but it also just depends on which one uh, you belong to. Um, but I think the biggest reason is because once you get that decision from the arbitrator, you have to, in order for that to be enforceable, you have to take it to a secular civil court. And the civil court actually reviews that decision for a number of different things, including substance, some substantive um, uh, fairness. And so things like were people, you know, brought, you know, where were the parties that they submit their dispute to the, to the arbitration by their own free will? Was there fairness? Was there some sort of like gender disparity or gender discrimination that happened? Those sorts of things that in the UK they're struggling with, those are the sorts of things that in our, in our context, arbitrators are careful to navigate because they know that whatever they come up with, it can only be enforced once the civil court checks for all these things. And also the civil court also checks, by the way, whether or not the decision comports with American public policy. So this idea of, of it being in conflict with American public policy is literally impossible because that's something that needs to be checked with uh, before, you can, before it's actually enforceable. Um, and because of this process, this back and forth process, this relationship between the arbitrator and the civil court, you know, what to me is fascinating is the fact that it absolutely helps create a sort of like a, a, you know, a key part of the creation of what I think is an authentic American Islam. Right, because you bring these two entities into conversation with each other in a way where you can be fully Muslim, right, and be able to arbitrate these disputes according to your tradition, but you're also fully American because you you know that it comports with American public policy. Um, and so I actually do think that this will, you know, there's the evidence is all there. There's no reason for it to to violate American values, uh, and if anything, I think it helps to facilitate it. All right, very good. Thank you for an excellent uh, conversation. Um, let's now open the uh, floor to our, our guests on the Zoom call. You can um, send a chat. Well, actually, maybe just use your hand raise function. Um, if you go to the participants um, button at the bottom of the screen, and then um, you'll find a little button that says more, and that, that will give you the, the hand raise um, uh, possibility. And so, um, if somebody wants to ask a question, they could um, raise their hand using that. I guess you can also send a chat to me, Daniel Philpott. Well, please feel free to uh, raise your hand. In, in lieu of not having any right at the moment, why don't we turn back to the classroom and um, 
we'll have another chance for a student to uh, ask a question. So, uh, yes, um, Cameron. Hi, I'm, I'm Cameron. I'm from Montana. Um, so you talked a little bit about your cause under the Trump administration, but I was curious as, as to um, your predictions for your cause under the Biden administration. Um, and maybe the future at large, I guess, are you optimistic or are you more pessimistic? Optimistic about uh, religious, liberty, religious liberty generally or? Like religious, freedom, religious freedom for, um, for Muslims. Yeah, I mean, I think that the types of really sort of blatant violations, um, I think that that's sort of culture that allows for and even celebrates like statements that are, you know, deeply problematic coming from like the highest sort of places of power, authorities of figure. I mean, I think that's something that's going to be limited during the Biden administration. I think we're already seeing that. Um, we're already, there's already been a number of sort of engagements with the White House Office of Faith-Based Partnerships, for example, and the different other entities that are, that are created at the State Department, the White House, the sorts of things that, to be honest, I mean, I've lived in D.C. for a while now, um, you know, that I, that I was used to. And then suddenly, you know, Trump was elected and all kinds of conversations and roundtables and events at the White House and, and that, that celebrated um, diverse religions and brought them to the table for feedback and sort of policy discussions, all of that came to a total halt. I mean, you know, it was, they were just all gone and then now it's back. Right. So I just, I feel like it's more kind of like what, what we were used to, what the norm was, um, you know, and I think, but that said, I think this question of like, you know, Biden and his various calls for unity. Um, I thought, you know, I, I found those to be, to be heartening. I think the language he was using about the need to lower the temperature is another way of stating kind of what I trace in the book in terms of conflict resolution strategy and social psychology around addressing people's vulnerability as a way of lowering the temperature. So that I think is, is promising. Um, I think on the religious liberty landscape more broadly, and it's because my work isn't one where I see the question of Muslims' religious liberty as something that's, that is somehow like distinct from the bigger question of religious liberty. Like I think it's, as I was explaining, to, if you really want to protect it robustly as a human right, you have to protect it equally for everyone. And so I think some of those tribal issues between, for example, um, conservatives and what they, in their, in their various claims, I think there's going to be some contention there in terms of the types of things that the Biden administration is proposing. Uh, for example, we already see it with um, the Quality Act and some of the, the concerns that have been raised for various religious groups who, because the Quality Act specifically says that you cannot bring uh, there's no exceptions for sort of religious objections under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And a number of religious groups have had you know, major problems with that because they think that that gets in the way of their being able to live according to their own religious ideas of, of sexuality, for example. Um, so I think those bigger tribal issues are going to continue. Um, I'm hoping that Biden, you know, it seems like to some extent he's going to try tempering them and sort of talk to various you know, various types of believers um, from both political tribes instead of excluding them, instead of sort of demonizing one side. Uh, I think that'll be a welcome change because um, I think if the demonization continues and if they're just sort of like, they continue to sort of plow through and say, this is what idea is of right and good and we're going to completely ignore these various religious objections. Then as I trace in my second book, I think that that sets, up, sets us up for a lot of problems because just the tribalism itself just really makes people mad and makes them feel really vulnerable. It makes them feel like their country is against them. Their fellow citizens are against them. And it just leads to a lot of hostility. 
Okay, thank you. Um, again, we welcome uh, questions from the Zoom uh, participants. But um, in lieu of no hands, why don't we? Um, oh, okay. Looks like we do. Um, where am I being directed to? Oh, yes, Ahan. Okay, great. Um, Ahan Mirza. Yes. Good morning. Um, Salam alaikum. Uh, to you, Asma and Ramadan Mubarak. Today is the first day of uh, fasting for all of us who, who are observing. Thank you uh, for being here uh, with us in South Bend. Unfortunately, it's virtual. Hopefully, we can have you in person sometime. And thank you, uh, Professor Philpot, for opening up this class. Um, this is all super interesting. I really, really appreciate your work. Um, I have one kind of observation or comment, and you're welcome to respond to that, and then one question. So, you know, when we talk about religious freedom at the legal level, you know, that's uh, what I think this conversation is about. But there's also a kind of cultural, you know, religious freedom, or religious freedom at the cultural level. So when certain things about your faith are unpopular, or considered to be bigoted, or backward, and then if you espouse those beliefs, there's a kind of cultural anathematization that can take place. And this is something that I think um, Catholic uh, community can also understand well with Muslims and other conservative Christians. For example, in questions like homosexuality, um, uh, sexual norms, um, if you, or for, you know, for some contraception, um, these questions, if, if you're raising your children with a certain kind of understanding about these questions, and then they go to school and their textbooks are giving them a different message. And then if they say, no, I don't believe this, I believe something else, then they're, you know, uh, marginalized or ostracized. And I, I wonder if you have thought about religious freedom also, if you can say something about at the cultural level. Uh, but my question on the legal side and I want to follow up with something, uh, what drew, the line of question that Drew, I believe, in the class uh, uh, started on, um, if you have Sharia arbitration courts, for example, can we uh, imagine a case in which they would um, come into serious tension with or even contradict um, the U.S. legal system? And so there you have you'll have a kind of conflict between uh, two legal systems. And I'll give you an example, and then I wanna see how you think about it. This is totally out of left field and a hypothetical, but I know that some jurists really enjoy the hypothetical, so I'm gonna give you one. This is from um, the life of the prophet, where um, uh, this woman came to him after having committed adultery. And she, she, uh, according to her understanding that, you know, that she would be purified. She was full of guilt. If the maximum sort of legal punishment would be applied to her, which is being stoned to death. Now, the prophet, in this case, you know, acting as the state, perhaps, he said, go, go away. You know, uh, uh, he first he asked, you know, if she was pregnant. He said, yes, he said, go have your child. And he, the way that the the scholars explain this to us as they say that, uh, you know, he was hoping she wouldn't come back. But then she had the child and came back and said, now I'm ready for the punishment. He said, well, why don't you go, you know, fulfill the rights of the child and suckle the child? 
for two years until the child is weaned. So she did that and came back. And then he said, all right, you know, um, we'll apply the punishment. And she was stoned. Now, in this case, it was her religious freedom that was being upheld, right? If a case like this were to come to a, an arbitration court in the United States, and you can determine that the person has not been coerced, would it be possible to uphold the religious freedom of an individual who wants to be purified according to their religious understanding and permit this kind of you know, adjudication, or would that be forbidden? And how do we make the determination? Sure. Um, so on the first question, and Ramadan Mubarak to you too, Mahan. Um, but on the first question, I'd like this cultural religious freedom and the ways that you know, people of you know, traditional interpretations of their religion feel ostracized in a context in which those traditional understandings are now considered you know, reflections of backwardness or bigotry and so on. I mean, it really kind of ties into the legal point of it, right? Because it's, the way I see religious freedom now is not the sort of this narrow, you know, it might not like one right among a sort of series of rights, but I really think of it as oftentimes an overarching right because it really kind of reflects to me, I think part and parcel with, with for example, free speech uh, and freedom of association, um, you know, it's really just our ability to be authentic to who we are. Like that is my conception of religious liberty, right? It's not your freedom to live according to traditional beliefs or, or progressive beliefs. It's really just like what is authentic and to create a space in society in which we're able to live our authentic selves without having to be coerced either by social or government pressures. I mean, ultimately, religious freedom is a legal right. It is about the legal relationship. I mean, that is the definition of religious freedom. Um, but more broadly, when it comes to this question of like social social contract and social cohesion, it's meant to facilitate that sort of diversity of belief and sort of freedom for dissent. Um, and so you'll see you'll see all the different conversations happening around, for example, the again the, the Equality Act. And the way that it specifically says that we want um, XYZ rights for LGBTQ individuals, and we want to make sure that nobody can raise any objections on the basis of their religious beliefs. And the response to that by lots of religious groups is not that we in any way condone discrimination against LGBTQ individuals. It's just we simply, this is telling us that this is not about equality. This is specifically saying that we are lesser than this right to trump our rights. You're basically helping to create a, 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 con, a framework, a society in which religious objections are considered, um, you know, uh, unjustified, uh, you know, unequal, um, and and so on, and, and are basically are banned, right? And so I think that ultimately is what the whole conversation is about. That's absolutely coming to the fore in the context of these various sexual freedom questions. Um, the question of, for example, the bakery, even that it's not so much the question, you know, what absolutely. Any religious group will say that if there, for example, is an access issue and you can't find uh, a cake anywhere else, then the Christian baker should be required to give it to you. But in the absence of that, why are you coercing this one guy out of like 200 bakers in the area to bake the cake? And it's because you're, you want to enforce a particular idea of what's right and good and not let him live according to his idea of what is right and good. Um, so I think that's the big question. I think that's all tied up. I say, you know, so you make this distinction between legal religious freedom and cultural religious freedom, and I would say that they're intrinsically connected. I think the conversations and the discourse around that, I think um, Justice Kennedy, when, you know, in the Burgerfeld decision, when the Supreme Court said that 
uh, there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, made it a point to say, but those people who, who, who have different views about same-sex marriage based on their religious traditions should be treated with honor, right? Um, and that was the, the, the framework that the court was trying to lay out. Don't come to us and keep litigating about these things and tell us that, you know, you're trying to stop XYZ religious individual from engaging in their beliefs. We're going to say that both sides should be able to have rights and you guys should be able to live in harmony with each other. Um, and once you set that tone, that, that's something that needs to be translated over culturally as well. Um, unfortunately, of course, as we know, that's not, that's not the case. Um, and we continue to fight about this. Um, and then on the question of the stoning and, and whether or not it violates our religious freedom, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, very, very fortunately, um, that would not be allowed uh, in the United States at all. Um, you know, for one, you know, criminal punishments are not something that can be arbitrated. It's not something that people have the religious freedom right to be uh, exempt from or, you know, it, this, this is entirely a question of like civil law. Uh, so that's like the first absolute clear part of that. Um, but also, I think your question is going to the bigger matter of what, what are the limits on religious liberty, right? We have a robust conception of religious liberty, but it's definitely not a free-for-all. Absolutely not a free-for-all. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have the most robust legal standard is one that asks whether the government has a compelling interest in restricting a particular re religious exercise or religious act. Um, and there's other parts of the standard, like, is there no other way to serve that interest uh, other than restricting it? Um, but 100% protecting someone in a life and death situation, uh, stopping someone from being stoned is absolutely qualifies as a government, as a compelling government interest. Um, and you see that, for example, in action, for, uh, you know, Jeho uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe in blood transfusions. Um, if it's a non-life-threatening um, you know, blood trans, you know, blood transfusion, if it's a question of a non-life-threatening non context and the blood transfusion is pertinent to an adult who can make that decision, then they can, they can actually say that we have a religious objection and we're not going to get that transfusion. But if you're dealing with a kid, then that, that actually the religious freedom claim does not hold up in that context. And we're seeing this, you know, with vaccinations and so on as well. So matters of life and death, the health of the safety of people, so on and so forth. Uh, national security, when done right and not done over broadly, uh, you know, constitutes uh, a, go a compelling government interest. Well, I think this brings our time to a close. And um, I want to, on behalf of um, our class and on behalf of the Tocqueville uh, program, to say thank you for sharing your time with us so generously. But even more so, thank you for your uh, courage and uh, determination, brilliance, and uh, defending the religious freedom of all for challenging us and uh, reminding us about how, how important that is. And we also wish you success in um, your new book and promoting it and, and, and having it uh, shared and um, promulgated. And we wish you a wonderful uh, Ramadan season as well. So thank you very much for being with us. Great. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. All right, very good. We'll be in touch soon.